nice to be with you in uh, Fernie Hill. And uh, thanks, Dave and the, the group for leading us so, so wonderfully in worship. That was just terrific. Thank you so much. We're going to look at this uh, story. I have a sneaking suspicion that um, some of you, at least some of you, have heard this story before. Um, if I wasn't sure about that, I'm now because you heard Jocelyn explain it to you. And really, what can I add to that? Um, it, it, that's an understatement, isn't it? Some of you have taught it to children, like like Jocelyn. Some of you have preached on it. Um, some of you have studied it in your uh, in your Bible study groups. Uh, it might be wiser just to have a kind of interaction here and a bit of a discussion about what you've learned through all that in the past. But um, sorry, you're not getting that this morning. Just have to listen to me for a wee while. But uh, basically, it's a bit like you know the, the stories that your dad. Uh, tells or uh, are used to tell and something of the impact wears off after you've heard it 147 times you know it doesn't quite have the same kind of grip as it did when it was first told and so for some of us we've heard this story so often it's become so much part of just the the atmosphere uh, for us that we lose sight of what it must have felt like to hear it for the first time imagine what it was like for the people who heard Jesus tell it first. So two people, two men, go to pray. It's a good start. Uh, And it's an interesting start because Jesus often, and you'll have seen this in some of the parables already, often uses that kind of comparison to make a point. He will compare uh, two groups or two people. So, for example, he'll compare two sons one who goes away from his home and makes ruin of his life but returns with sorrow to his father while the other son remains at home but is filled with anger and resentment. So the picture that Rembrandt painted of the son shows the returning prodigal and the father welcoming him back uh, in his sorrow for how he's mishandled his life. But at the back of the picture, of course, is the angry, arrogant, perhaps certainly uh, pained uh, former son, resentful form, uh, uh, elder son. And then, of course, there are parables like the parable of the, the good builder and the foolish builder, a comparison. The parable of the, the wise virgins, the wise bridesmaids, and the foolish bridesmaids. And, of course, in that instance, We're to take the point that we must be prepared because some of the bridesmaids bring extra oil with them to light their lamps and keep them lit, whereas the foolish bridesmaids do nothing to prepare uh, when they're engulfed by the darkness. So Jesus uses this idea of comparison often. And within that, there is a, a lesson to learn, a good example, and then there's an example to avoid. So with the wise and foolish builders we've got to obey we don't build our house on the sand of thinking our own way is right we dig deep to find out what God wants us to do and obey him so there's that comparison that goes on within Jesus parables and often it is a comparison that says here is the character here's the values that are that are acceptable within the kingdom of God and reflect when Jesus is king compared to the 
the kind of attitude that says, well, I'll just do things my own way. I won't prepare uh, for God and his judgment of me. Uh, I'll just I'll just remain uh, where I am. And so Jesus comes to, to this story. And um, the question, I suppose, is as these two men go up, the question in our minds is, which one example are we to follow I wonder here are two men there's going to be a comparison which example should we follow and which example should we avoid now the interesting thing is that of course the Pharisees mentioned you know pantomime style we all know to go boo hiss you know Pharisees rubbish villains horrible we all know that but the point is not that at all And Jesus, I don't think, is saying that every Pharisee is like this. This particular Pharisee is like this. Because the Pharisees actually uh, were people who were recognized within their community as being respectable and being some people to be looked up to. So there's this little comment uh, by uh, someone, which uh, you may get to see or you may not. Where do I point this up here? There we go. This is what someone says about the Pharisee. The modern day counterpart of this Pharisee would be welcomed into any respectable community, religious or social, and given a responsible position. So let's not be too quick to kind of boo his the Pharisee. What would they be like? What would the Pharisee or who would the Pharisee be today? Well, they'd be a leader within the church. They might be one of the elders in Ferny Hill Evangelical. They might be one of your favorite preachers. Not today's preacher, of course, but one of your favorite preachers. They might be um, a godly woman who, who serves within the church. They're certainly recognized in the community as being spiritual, committed, even godly people. Surely the Pharisee is going to be the prime example of how we should behave. That was the point that Jesus was making from this story. That was the surprise that was coming. Because then there's the tax collector. Now, I I just discovered this, that actually you became a tax collector through a kind of bidding system. What you did was uh, you put up, it was a kind of auction where you said, I can collect this amount of money, these amount of shekels or whatever, denarii, through the tax system. I can collect this amount And if you were top of the list, then you were given the job of tax collector for the Romans. But of course, if you collected more than you'd said you would, that was all yours. So it was a kind of heyday for those who were willing to try to squeeze as many taxes as they could because everything they got above what they said they would collect went straight into their pockets. It was a recipe for exhorting as much as you could from people. And in addition, of course, you were working for the enemy. You were working for the Roman authorities. You were a cheat and a traitor. So here we have the Pharisee, the upstanding elder of the church, recognized in the community, over against this cheat and traitor. Who's going to be the example? people would immediately rush to a a conclusion. Because who are we thinking about today? 
the the tax collector be? Might they be the the local drug dealer? I don't know. A payday loan shark? The local bookie? Who do you think the tax collector would be in this circumstance? So do you catch something of the surprise here? The surprise that someone has summarized by saying this. There's the tax collector. He might be a a drug dealer or a loan shark. Sorry, I've put this in the wrong place. And uh, we'll need to come back to that. Yeah, we will. Let me just say it to you then and you'll see it later. They've summarized this parable by saying that those who are written off elsewhere are written in by God in the gospel. Those who are written off by those elsewhere are written in by God in the gospel. So you would just write off the tax collector. There's no way that he's going to be the example. God writes him into the story as the character that we should follow. That's what God does with people. And so we hear these two people praying. The Pharisee, of course, knows how to pray. He's got it sussed. He's got all the ritual there. He's eloquent and he's confident in his prayers. He thanks God for who he is. He's part of the people of God. Unlike some who don't follow God and his ways, like that tax collector. And this Pharisee does things that marks him off from others. He demonstrates that he belongs to God. How? By fasting, giving up food for God, and giving. By giving a tenth of everything he has, he says, to God in his work. This is a committed person. This is someone who is sure of his position as one of the people of God, And he's demonstrating that position in his lifestyle. He's got something to be proud about, hasn't he? The problem is that being part of the people of God, even although you're fasting and praying, you don't earn anything from God by that fasting and praying, do you? You don't somehow get on God's good side because of your fasting and praying. You're part of the people of God only because of God's mercy. So he was doing great things and he was doing them because he believed he was one of the the in crowd. He was one of the special people. But how easy it is to feel superiority when we think we're on the inside and others are outside. Some of us read the Bible and pray every day. Some of us, we attend church every week. We go to to house groups. We, We give to the church. And these mark us out as followers of Jesus. But they don't earn anything from Jesus, do they? They don't earn brownie points with Jesus doing these things. It's through Christ and him alone as we've sung. Jesus explains the problem, actually, in verse 9 when he opens up this parable. He says, I'm telling you this parable because there are people who are confident in their own righteousness and they look down on everybody else. From their high, lofty position, their superiority in being part of God's people, 
understand. They can think of others and disdain them. The Pharisee is too confident in his own behavior and that allows him to look down on everybody else. There's a problem if we forget about the need for mercy. Mercy for ourselves before God and mercy from ourselves to other people. We can be doing all the right things, can't we? But so certain of our own security that allows us to stand in judgment over others. You can see this now. Many of us will uh, know the famous sketch uh, that uh, involved the tallest man, John Cleese, the next man, uh, Ronnie Barker, and the small Ronnie Corbett. And the the television sketch, if you haven't seen it, and they do, they show it every year somehow, um, was based on this. So John Cleese, the tall John Cleese says, I look down on him, looking at Ronnie Barker, the one in the nice jacket, (laughs) maybe, and says, I look down on him because I'm upper class. And then Barker turns to wee Ronnie Corbett and says, I look down on him, sorry, he turns to to John Cleese and says, I look up to him because he is upper class. But he then turns to Ronnie Corbett and says, but I look down on him because he's working class. Ronnie Corbett simply says, I know my place. I look up to them both, but I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him because he's upper class and he has got innate breeding. It's so easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Thinking that God loves me more than the woman next door. Believing that we can be so sure of our own status that allows us to judge or even disdain others. I remember at a, I was just walking, it's not so many years ago, walking past Haymarket Station. And I, I was being approached by this random guy. Never seen him before in my life, probably never see him again. And it suddenly struck me that God loved that guy as much as me. Maybe you think, well, that's a daft thing to say. Of course, of course he does. It never really struck me that God knew that person intimately and loved him as much as he did me. But it's so easy, isn't it, to feel so secure in our own status it allows us to judge or even disdain others and we're part of a society where that has become common you don't you don't just disagree with people nowadays do you if they disagree with you they you question their sanity and you question their morality the whole story of jk rowling and how she's been kind of seen as a a figure of hate by so many people because she made some comments about being a woman. She's she's not just allowed to be disagreed with. No, she's got to be seen as morally corrupt. And we're part of that society that can disdain others. But we need to know the mercy for us from God and from us to everyone else. That's the point of this parable. 
It's not so we can smugly say, oh, we're not like that Pharisee, because that's exactly the point that Jesus wants to make to us. So David Wilkie, I don't know if you know uh, David Wilkie's uh, uh, paintings. He's one of the, the greatest Scottish painters, I think. And he, he captured disdain in this painting. What's happening in this painting, it's called the letter of introduction. And what has happened is that a young uh, Scotsman uh, has come from Scotland to London and uh, he's been told to visit someone, uh, a fellow Scot, who's already established in, in London and to give him a letter to present to him so that he'll accept him and perhaps find him a route into, into London society. What's the reception like here, do you think, in this picture? Is a warm reception that he's getting for his letter of introduction? Nothing like it. Even the dog is suspicious. It's disinterest, isn't it? This person's a nuisance, a bother, even an irritant. This man is so established himself, so sure of himself, he can be dismissive of others. He can show disdain. I was reflecting on that compared with another story in London. Some of you will know the name John Stott, the great John Stott, chaplain to the Queen. A Cambridge graduate, rector of all souls, lying in place right next to the BBC in the centre of London. Internationally renowned Bible teacher. He was out on the streets of London one afternoon and unbeknown to him, there was someone watching him that told this story later. Because what he saw John Stott doing, the great John Stott, author, preacher, as I say, chaplain to the Queen. And he watched him as he approached this man who was begging. And as he was passing, the the man who was begging dropped a a stub of a pencil that he had. And John John Stott stopped, which takes quite a bit of saying. John Stott stopped bent down and picked up the stub of a pencil and gave it back to the man and then engaged him in conversation, overheard to be something of expressing the love of Christ to this man. Here's someone who knew his identity in Christ, but that ushered in mercy to others, that ushered in not feeling a degree of superiority over others, but a degree of of love, to express the same love to this man as he had discovered in, in Christ. Because those written off elsewhere are written in by God in the gospel. Right behavior without a right attitude, keeping up appearances without love, These are complete contradictions of following Jesus, aren't they? The tax collector, the drug dealer, the loan shark. The tax collector points the way. He he doesn't really know how to pray. But that doesn't matter. He knows that he has nothing to bring. And can only cast himself on God's mercy. There's no sense of privilege There's no sense that he has a call upon God and he prays a prayer that is really the basis for what has become known as the Jesus prayer. 
And it's a prayer that's used throughout the world, particularly in certain traditions like the Orthodox Church. Do you know that simple prayer? It simply goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the Orthodox tradition, they repeat that several times, just slowly in God's presence. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not a particularly complex or eloquent prayer is it it's not a long prayer but it expresses that deep sense of need before God and Jesus asks us what attitudes what values what behavior is is God looking for what's the characteristic of those who truly belong to God's kingdom as Jocelyn so clearly pointed out it's humility Exalt yourself and you will be humbled. It's dependence. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Let me finish with words from a Stuart Townend song that you may know. He, he sings these words, Come all you vagabonds, come all you don't belongs, winners and losers, come people like me, come all you travellers, Tired from the journey, come wait a while, stay a while, welcome you'll be. Come to the feast, there's room at the table. Come let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness, who welcomes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. Come self-sufficient with wearied ambition, and come those who feel at the end of the road, fiery debaters and religion haters, accusers, abusers, the hurt and ignored. Come to the feast, there's room at the table. Come let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness, who comes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. May God bless his word in our hearts.